But we'll get smart sports, guys. It's brought to you by CellMaxBatteries.com, as always. CellMax Batteries offers a full line of super heavy-duty ultra-alkaline lithium and bun cell batteries. CellMax Batteries compares in quality to well-known national brands, and the best part, CellMax Batteries are priced much lower than their competitors. Flashlights, remote controls, gaming controls, headphones, digital cameras, hearing aids, smoke alarms, whatever device you need a battery for, CellMax Batteries has the best batteries at the best price for your device. Guys, it is episode 100. We're recording episode 100 right now. So if you haven't headed over to CellMaxBatteries.com yet throughout listening to this podcast, now is the time to do it to celebrate episode 100 and buy batteries for whatever device in your house that you need batteries for. Okay, because you can order a 24 backup AA or AAA heavy-duty batteries ideal for your television remotes for only $5.99 or a 24-pack of Ultra Alkaline, idea for gaming high-tech devices at just $12.99. And you can order it and use coupon code BOSTON at checkout and save 20% off your entire order. That's coupon code BOSTON, all uppercase, and say big today. SummaxBatteries.com, C-E-L-L-M-A-X-Batteries.com, the official sponsor of the Wicked Smart Sports Guys. Hey guys, this is going to be a special episode. It is the 100th episode, obviously, and I decided that I was going to have my dad on. My dad worked on movies in Boston for like 30 years or something like that for a very long time. You know how during the Marvel movies you have to sit through all the names that are going across the scene so you can wait for the bonus scene that comes after all of that? That's where my dad would show up. He worked at the Boston Garden for a while during different events there, worked in the theater district a lot. He has some incredible stories about run-ins he's had with different athletes in Boston and actors and all these kinds of things, and I thought it would be the perfect setting for episode 100 to have him come on and tell some of those stories of the interactions he's had with some Boston sports legends and some Boston acting legends as well. So I hope you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, here is the 100th episode of the Wicked Smart Sports Guys podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Wicked Smart Sports Guys podcast. Thanks to Dodgers, as always, for the intro music. Episode 100, it's the 100th episode special, and we're doing something a little different for this episode because it's the 100th episode, I want to do something special, and I thought, who better to have on than my dad, as I hit the century mark, 70 years young, Kenneth Doyle Jr. For those of you that didn't know, that makes me the third. And you're fresh off of surgery. How are you feeling? Good. Good. I wanted to have you on for a couple of reasons. First, because since you're my dad, it's only right that you get to come on for the 100th episode. But also, you have a million stories from living and working in Boston that would be so perfect for a podcast. Uh, you did it for so many years. You met, ran into so many sports icons and actors and so much else so it's hard to keep track of them so i feel like recording them will help you know you were a set designer for years um in boston and ran some some pretty famous movies i'll say you know we'll talk about a few of them you've held a few different titles i don't know if you know this did you know you have your own imdb page uh your mother told me yeah yeah i have it right here let me pull it up real quick there it is have you seen it yet or do you just know you have it no Well, you can see, yep, there are all your movies right there. Art department right there at the top. It says you're known for movies. There are six there. Is it missing anything that you can see? Uh, I think I did about 40 different features in some form or other. Uh, so there's only six there, so it's definitely missing a few. So obviously IMDb, Internet Movie Database, tracks all this stuff of actors and set designers, obviously, stuff like that. I wasn't really a set designer. I was more like the on-set guy. Yeah. So you have all your movies right there. It's pretty incredible. And a, a pretty incredible list of stars featured in these movies. Matt Damon, Robert Williams, Ben Affleck, John Travolta, Daniel Day-Lewis, Winona Ryder, Dan Aykroyd, Damon Wayans. I mean, just just the ones that are listed here on IMDb. I mean, it's a pretty incredible list. Clint Eastwood as well. What was it like working with some of those people? Is there anybody that stands out? John Travolta was exceptionally nice. Uh, Jeff Bridges 
And, uh, what was your interaction with John Travolta like? John Travolta was really nice, exceptionally yeah. nice. We did a lot of filming, if I recall, um, in Med State Hospital, yeah. Waltham, yeah. Lexington. We used a lot of the, the hospital had been closed, and we did a lot of filming there. Uh, Bill Weld was the governor, and he used to let the studios come use the state hospitals. Yeah. One of the movies that immediately sticks out on here is Celtic Pride, you know, especially as it relates to this podcast. One of the more interesting movies ever made, I'd say. It was kind of a golden age for basketball movies, I guess you could say. You know, Space Jam came out the same year, Basketball Diaries came out the year before, and Celtic Pride comes out. You know, the Celtics aren't very good at the time. The movie came out right after, the, you know, they were went at 33 and 49, I think, that season. And, but in this movie world, if you see the movie, the Celtics are in the NBA Finals. And, uh, you know, of course, they kidnap the other team's best player and hijinks ensue and stuff like that. So um, I'm not sure if this qualifies as a cult classic. I mean, it kind, it kind of strikes me as somewhat of a mistake by the studio to not realize how small of the audi- an audience they were catering to with Celtics fans being the only people that this movie would really catch the eye of. Do you know what this movie's score was on Rotten Tomatoes? No, but I know that it wasn't a very successful in the box office anyway. Yeah. It only got 8%, you know, so probably one of the worst scores you'll ever find. When you're working on movies in general, not just this one, do you have a sense of whether it's going to be a good or bad movie during the filming process? Or do you, did you personally have a good sense for that? Not really. Um, you know, you never do a film in chronological audio film. Um, what's convenient for the studio. So if you're in one place and you have scenes over several months or even yeah. over years, you'd film it all pretty much at the same time, changing the decor and the outside to match whatever season it is. So uh, you have a sense of what's happening in the movie, but you don't really have the story. I mean, yeah. from reading the script, obviously, you know what's going on, but it's never filmed in chronological order, so... So you got the scripts for all these movies? Yes, them. yeah. And what would you do if you'd go through them? I'd them? read them ahead of time. Did someone tell you how you would have to set scenes for certain scenes, or would you kind of decide yourself and you would be... No, you'd be told. Like the, to art the art director, director the art director, the unit production designer. Did you get much control over that as the years went on, or you always had to listen? No, you you listened more or less to them. But, you, you know, we were had some freedom to, to do things the way we felt was best. Yeah. They always appreciated what I did. Yeah. I usually tried to go the extra mile. On the Celtic Pride movie, you actually got to keep a couple of memorabilia items for that movie. I, I, I know because the theme of the movie is that these guys are mega Celtics fans and they have rooms full of memorabilia of Celtics stuff. I know one of the things you got to keep was uh, you had a Celtics beanbag chair that I had for a while. Did you often take stuff from different movie sets that you were on? I can't recall any. I know in, in the basement of our old house, there were a number of different things down there from you had in the movies that were stored down there. And then there was the flood that in the basement that kind of ruined a lot of that stuff, unfortunately. I thought about opening a prop house at one point. Yeah. I think we had over 120 bikes, different Raleigh's and yeah. all different English bikes. And, and of course, a lot of the movie stuff. Yeah, and just from a product of being Boston, I know you have a, you have a ton of stories about how you've met uh, different athletes uh, all the time. One of the things that isn't even relating to filming or movies or anything is the time you met Dennis Johnson, which was obviously a real estate agent when you were real estate agent for a little while. Yes, yeah. I was uh, showing houses in Lexington at the time to a younger couple. Uh, he had just graduated from Harvard and worked for Lotus, and I think he was the developer of Lotus One, Two, Three. Anyway, they were looking for houses. 
Um, I think the budget was about half a million dollars. And one of the houses we went to was Dennis Johnson's. The feller wasn't there. His name was Bill Schultz, I believe. But his wife was. And um, if I recall, she had an allergy to cats. And as the front door opened, a cat came flying out of the house. And she refused to go in. And I always thought that Dennis Johnson kind of thought it was a racial thing for her not to go in the house. But um, he wasn't particularly in a good mood anyway. We ended up going in the house, but I think he had just... Uh, he didn't have a great reaction. No, and his it looked like his wife had just left. I think they had a young child, so he had just been uh, released by the Celtics, so they didn't sign him again. Yeah. They didn't sign him again. I don't think he had much notice mm. of not being re-signed. And um, I think he felt it was kind of, well, definitely it was kind of a shock to him that he wasn't re-signed with the Celtics and to a lot of uh, the fans, Celtics fans too. And I think he was, you know, just not in a good mood. Yeah, he felt slighted by the franchise. Right. You know, he has his number retired, so he probably thought he was going to retire a Celtic. And it makes sense that he wasn't too happy. He wasn't happy, though. I yeah. think he ended up going to uh, Washington to the uh, the Wizards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then there was the other time, kind of a controversial story of yours, the time you met Larry Bird. He said you didn't like Larry Bird. I didn't care much for Larry Bird. He wasn't a very personable guy. I did a commercial with him and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. and Kareem was the nicest guy to all his fans, to the crew. And Larry Bird was kind of, he was very standoffish and wasn't very friendly with anybody. Yeah. Including fans. What was the commercial for? Frito-Lay potato chips. It was a game of nine outs they played in the uh, YMCA in, on Huntington Ave in Boston. Yeah. And they had picked that court because it had a very pristine look from the 50s. Always well kept and... It was a really beautiful basketball court. I mean, it really shouldn't surprise most people that Larry Bird wasn't a very kind person. I mean, it's kind of a shocking comment, and it certainly strikes people, and it makes sense that people kind of push back a little bit with how much they love Larry Bird. But when looking at how he played on the court... Oh, yeah, without without question, he was probably one of the premier basketball players of all time, but right. he was not a really nice guy. Yeah, I mean, with how he acted on the court specifically, people shouldn't be surprised by that story but you know people are but people just don't want to hear anything bad about Larry Bird perhaps the person you have the best relationship with out of all the people you met is a guy that actually just had an HBO documentary made about them Andre the Giant how did you meet Andre how did that happen I was sitting in a club across the street from uh, the Wang Theater in Boston a place yeah. called Alfie's and uh, it was around noontime I think and I had just gone in for a couple of cold ones and the stools to the right and left of me, there were two stools on either side that were empty. And this guy tapped me on the back of the shoulder and asked me if I could move. And I turned around, it was Andre the Giant. Yeah. And uh, he needed three bar stools to sit on. Yeah. And uh, I ended up becoming pretty good friends with Andre. At what point was this in his career? Was he already doing The Princess Bride? And he, I think he had already done, I think he had done that in like the 80s, yeah. the late 80s maybe. And this was probably... Around late 80s or early 90s, but I think he had already done Prince's Pride. He was kind of well-known as a wrestler anyway around Boston. Yeah. He had wrestled professionally for a lot of years. You did some wrestling events at the TD Garden. Did you ever do one of his wrestling events? I never did one of his, no. no. 
what was he like? Because I know specifically in the HBO documentary, they talked about how much pain he was in caused by his disease. He was a really nice guy, though. Yeah. Really nice guy. That didn't affect him or his personality. He was a really bubbly, friendly guy. You saw him a couple times after that? Yeah, I met him. So, yeah. He used to drink in Alfie's. It was a regular occurrence for him when he was in Boston. Yeah. You must have run into a lot of Boston athletes in the bars at that time. The Bruins or anyone like that? Uh, not so much the Bruins. Uh, the Celtics used to go to the restaurants, yeah. in the theater district, yeah. and I used to see them. Um, the Bruins, we used to go to Derek Sanderson's by years before, outside of Kenmore Square, Zelda's. Derek used to lock the doors and would stay there for the night. I had some friends that were well-known comedians, and that's how I met Derek Sanderson. Well, we should talk about Goodwill Hunting because it's arguably the biggest Boston movie ever made. Do you think that's fair to say? Uh, yes, I'd say probably. What was it like working on that movie? Was there a sense that something special was going on during that movie? Because obviously Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, they're not necessarily the big stars they are now during that movie, but... You know, you also had Robin Williams on that movie, so was there a sense that it was going to be as big as it was? Uh, not really. Um, I had worked with Matt Damon and um, Ben Affleck before we had done a movie. They were local boys anyway. Yeah. So we had done, um, I think, school ties with them before, with uh, Brendan Frazier. Um, but Robin Williams, well, I actually had worked with Robin Williams before, too. I had done um, Jumanji with him in Keene. And I became kind of friendly with him through one of the Teamsters, Bobby Kahn's, and I were kind of friendly with Robin. So Jumanji was one of the 40 that they missed on the IMDb page. <laughs> I'm sure quite a few, I'm sure. Because I think, didn't you work with Harrison Ford before he was even famous or something like that? No. He had been in my union. He was a carpenter, I think, in the, uh, uh, the uh, IATSE. But I think that's how he got his break, too. Yeah. Probably going back to... 70 some point right. um, American graffiti but oh, yeah he had been a carpenter in the, in the union so for Goodwill Hunting you were invited to the premiere you didn't even go to the premiere of the movie did you? yes I was working during the premiere <clears throat> but um, there was a rap party in some of the the burn to yeah. the Irish bar Yeah. so I had come from my job in the theaters to the party, but there were only a few people there. Matt Damon and his girlfriend at the time, um, Minnie Driver, um, a couple that was running the Four Seasons Hotel, and Robert Duvall and his assistant, and me. Yeah. So we, had, we were like the first seven people there. So and you walked in, they were already sitting down? Yeah. They said, come sit with us. That's pretty crazy that you just walked in, you were sitting at the table with Matt Damon and his girlfriend and all his people alone while the premiere was going on just <laughs> over many blocks away. But uh, getting back to the movie a little bit, one other thing about Goodwill Hunting was that a lot of the stuff on set was your stuff. True, yeah, and about Williams. half of it. And Robin Williams' office, a lot of the stuff was your military stuff from Vietnam and... Yes, his apartment I think was on um, 60th Street in Southie. Did the director ask you for that stuff? Or? No, Robin Williams knew that I was a Vietnam vet. Yeah. From when we did the Jumanji, I think someone told him. Yeah. <clears throat> so he asked if I was on the work, and I wasn't actually on the set. I was uh, part of the set dressing crew. I yeah. think the second set dressing crew or something. But 
one of the teams has asked me, they said, Robin Williams wants to see you, and he's wondering if they can use some of your stuff. And so they put some of the stuff in the movie, put it in the background, and then afterwards he signed it for you, right? Right, yeah, he did. Were there certain things you didn't want him to sign? No. Yeah, he actually, he asked me if he could sign it, and I said yes. Do you still have that stuff? I do, yeah. On the Crucible with, with Daniel Day-Lewis, was it weird working with Daniel Day-Lewis? Because I know he's very method actor. It's kind of a public thing of how serious he gets into the role and everything like that. Was it weird with him on set being so in character all the time? Was that a, something you ran into? Well, Daniel Day-Lewis was very unique in the fact that he came a couple of months before the filming even started and joined our union and worked as a carpenter. So we got to know him pretty well. I mean, we played football together in lunch hour and, you know, would see him throughout the day. And, you know, he was a really good worker. And uh, he was kind of skilled as a carpenter, too. Uh, but he got right into, you know, our time, the time period was like the late 1600s. And um, he was uh, generally a really good guy. And then Winona Ryder was in that movie, and this was right as she was kind of rising to stardom, right? Uh, no, she was a pretty well-known actress by then. I had worked with her when she was about 16. Actually, she was uh, she played Shia's oldest daughter in the movie called Mermaids. Yeah. And um, now I would say for The Crucibles, she was, it was probably like 15 years later. So she... Uh, Asked me if she could have half my package of fig bars or something. Well, then in 2003, you worked with Clint Eastwood on Mystic River. And then after the movie, I don't know if it was Clint Eastwood or someone else, but they called to you and asked you, basically asking you to move to California and be on his personal crew. Right. They're trying to gauge your interest in potentially working. Yeah, and I, I wasn't involved. All my family's in this area, so. Well, also, so this was 2003. You have four kids, you have three that are under the age of seven. Were you even able to really give consideration to what the offer was? I was going to leave my mother and my family. And so you didn't even give it a second thought? I didn't, no. It would have been pretty cool to work with Clint Eastwood on all his movies. Yeah, movies. yeah, he's a good guy. I didn't really, first of all, it wasn't Clint asking me. It was one of his uh, carpenters. And um, second, I really wouldn't consider moving to California. Yeah. My mother was still alive at the time, and I never really considered it. And then you had the knee surgery, kind of. You had to stop working on stuff like that. Well, I think it was the stents in my heart that oh, yeah. kind of promoted the union to push the union to push me to retire. Did you ever try to go back, even though the union wouldn't let you? I, you know, I would have liked to have, but unfortunately, when you're done, you're done with the yeah. union. All right, well, thanks for coming on, and thanks for leaving me when I was five to go work with Clint Eastwood in California. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate you coming on for the 100th episode. Well, congratulations. Good luck. I listen to your podcasts, and they're yeah. really good. You do a great okay. job. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, guys, that's going to do it for episode 100. hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back later this week for a Bruins Blues series preview with Jeremy, so keep an eye out for that. But remember, you can follow me on Twitter at KJLGBS. You can follow the pod on Twitter at Smart Pod. Check out everything over at Guy Boston Sports. And thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week.